Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to Humanities Matter, brought to you by Brill. I'm Lee Chung Greco, and this week we'll be looking at key issues in the field of humanities. Today we're speaking with Jacqueline Fulton. She's a professor of sociology at the National University in San Diego. She's a cultural critic, social theorist, and media expert across the fields of fashion and pop culture. And we're speaking with Laura Pettigan. She's an art historian and curator. Her research is centered in contemporary Italian art and fashion studies. Their book is In Fashion, Culture, Commerce, Craft, and Identity. Thanks so much to you both. Thank you for having us. Great. So first of all, just tell us what does it mean for the contributors of In Fashion to be, quote, in fashion? That's a very good question. And the cover of the book, I think, reflects it. Uh, we chose a uh, image that shows two women actually in fashion, uh, standing in a, a lake, which is, is uh, kind of a symbol or metaphor for what we're getting at. And for some, being in fashion is being one with the zeitgeist, one with the times. For others, it's following the lead of fashion editors, celebrities, and local media trendsetters. And for still others, being in fashion is putting one's own stamp on one's look, mixing it up, combining the old and the new, high and the low. Um, as one of my friends who's known for her striking personal style observes, any combination that suits my personality and body is fair game these days. So it's a wonderful time for fashion and for writing about fashion because we're living in a time of open fashion when there is pluralistic democratic uh, aspect to the endless opportunities to make social, cultural, economic, political, and identity statements through fashion or to make no statement at all. Another aspect of being in fashion for our contributors to this book in fashion, culture, commerce, craft, and identity is that they are engaging in fashion as academics. They're doing it from various disciplinary, professional, and creative perspectives. So for them, being in fashion is not only personal, it's being immersed in the presentation of self. It's also about defining how fashion is presented in the visual, written, and performing arts. And also as well, how fashion is in by being designed, crafted, manufactured, packaged, marketed, and archived. Uh, while broadly defined, the theme in fashion threads its way through the book, which is divided into five sections. Uh, the part one is about fashioning representations. Part two is about uh, being fashionable, shopping, luxury, and vintage. Part three is about fashion's materials, craft, industry, and innovation. And part four focuses on what's museum worthy, fashion and the archive. And part five is looking at fashion and cultural identities, which is case studies. That's really interesting to hear you talk about what it means to be in fashion. You talk about that sort of democratic element to it that we're seeing today, um, but also what it means to be fashionable. Um, it makes me think of something that the late New York Times photographer Bill Cunningham used to talk about a lot, which was he would photograph people who were stylish, 
um, expressing themselves in a unique way, but not necessarily people who were fashionable, um, you know, following the trends. Um, so I'm curious, like, is there a difference between when someone is in fashion and when someone is stylish, like to be fashionable, does that mean you are following something, following some sort of rules? Um, Cause that seems to go against what you mentioned, you know, that fashion has become more democratic. Very good question. Uh, I teach a course where we talk about uh, fashion in terms of work done by Georg Zimmel and uh, Torsten Veblen in the course Contemporary Fashion Theorists and definitely make a distinction between having personal style and being like a fashion victim or the old word fashionista. Uh, that's why, you know, I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast that some people slavishly follow fashion and don't have any personal style. And definitely uh, Cunningham focused on people with personal style. And street fashion has become very important in the democratic uh, distribution of fashion. And that's why the street photographers and influencers uh, focused on what's going on with people's personal style on the streets influence so much what's happening with fashion designers now who raid uh, Instagram and other sites and actually hire these, these influencers who specialize in personal or street fashion to influence what's going on in fashion. Well, and now it's sort of crazy because Bill Cunningham was at the forefront maybe of photographing people on the street and he was sort of one of the few people to do that and elevate regular people to a national level or you know even just the Manhattan level which is huge in the fashion world but now as you said it's like everyone who is on Instagram can dictate what is happening at the highest levels of fashion. They can dictate what's happening on the runway, which is sort of strange. It is. In fact, they sit at the front seat rows with Anna Wintour now. Uh, the traditional fashion uh, arbitrators have, arbiters have lost their position. Um, and that's certainly shown by the decrease in magazine subscriptions and so on of the fashion Bibles. Uh, it's so interesting, a theorist, uh, Gilles Lipovetsky, a philosopher sociologist from France was writing about this decades ago. And he's the one who termed the concept of open fashion, that fashion has become the rule of consumer culture, whether it's in clothing or technology or kitchen design, everything kind of goes. We've never lived in a time where there's, we have more options to uh, express personal style uh, or to follow fashion trends or create tra fashion trends. And you can do it from every continent. I wouldn't be surprised if there's fashion influencers who are researchers in Antarctica now. So, I mean, everywhere, every continent, and you have instant access through the internet. The internet and social media have changed everything. I want to talk about something that really piqued my interest uh, in this book, and I'm sure will um, pique a lot of millennial women's interest uh, if they're reading this. Uh, you mentioned briefly uh, the Gossip Girl novels, which of mm. course spawned the very famous CW series later on, which became 
in a way kind of its own fashion Bible, I think, uh, in the 2000s. But uh, I'm curious, what role does the fashion model play in novels, particularly fiction aimed at young girls? This is such an interesting chapter and why we chose it to open the book. Um, let me give a little background about fashion and fiction. Uh, fascinatingly, books aimed at girls and young women are historically connected to fairy tales, religious fiction, and education, and are important in setting standards of behavior for girls and young women. And fashion has played an extremely important role within girls' fiction over the past 150 years. It's nothing new. Uh, since Louisa May Alcott's Little Women and Nancy Drew detective books, what girls wear and how they look are central aspects of the genre. This is certainly true in this chapter called Sarah Gay Model Girl and the four novels that the author talks about. Uh, written in 1961 by Janie Scott, but still followed very closely uh, by people who collect the books and written about. The fashion studies and literary scholar Erica Lunding, who is from Sweden, provides a thought-provoking look at the role of fashion modeling in, in these novels and discusses how fashion, beauty, gender, class, youth, and achievement are imagined girls' series books. I found this research so interesting because I learned a lot from it. And at the time of the publication of the Sarah Gay Model Girl series in the early 1960s, the fashion model was becoming a pop cultural phenomenon, consumer culture icon and role model in girls' culture. Uh, this is seen not only in the Sarah Gay Model Girl novels series of four books, but in the rise of popularity of the Barbie doll and of supermodels like Jean Shrimpton and Twiggy as part of the Carnaby Street youth culture swing 60s of the London, uh, connected to the rise of the fashion model and popular culture is the rise of fashion capital, capitals like New York and London that challenge the hegemony of Paris. And it's all part of the youth culture. And these are featured in the novels uh, very interestingly. They're, they're kind of a travelogue of a young model going to the different fashion cities, uh, London and Paris and New York. Um, for me, a surprising aspect of girls' fiction focused on fashion models is that fashion and careers are more important than romance in these novels. And I don't want to, I want to emphasize that because that was really a striking finding of Erica Lunding's research. That romance, uh, which many people would think, you know, boys and romance is what drives girls' fiction and young women's fiction. Uh, she found that fashion models and fashion and careers were very important. Of course, you could say, well, those attract boys and young men, but um, it was, it's so interesting because fashion models are portrayed as career savvy, hardworking, self-sufficient, independent new women who just happen to be beautiful and have glamorous careers. And more generally, careers in fashion are presented as desirable, aligned with feminism, and as creatively satisfying. And this is in 1961. So in 2022, whether in girls' fiction, advertising, runways, magazines, reality TV, or social media, the fashion model, for better or worse, remains a ubiquitous feature of global popular and consumer celebrity fame, culture, no matter the controversy about the too often ugly aspects of the fashion modeling industry, 
particularly for teens and young women uh, with eating disorders and so on. So I, I wanna put that out there um, as something to think about. But the Airhead and Geek Girl uh, series are extraordinarily popular series books and they're focused on fashion models and, and young women and girls looks. And uh, also, you know, cult TV series uh, in terms of rich, beautiful girls with model looks and wardrobes. Uh, it's very striking, but again, for me, the major finding of this research, besides inherent interest, is that the models are presented more in terms of their careers and feminism than an independence and making career choices that make them independent rather than being focused on boys and romance and young men. Yeah, and to that point, I would sort of push back on the idea that fashion somehow attracts men. I would almost argue that in a sense it repels men. Um, <laughs> there was a very famous blog, uh, The Man Repeller, and uh, the author, her, her entire point was that she wore weird clothes that would never be attractive to men. Um, and she sort of like buried the news that she eventually got married, um, which I think is sort of funny <laughs> and it might ruin her brand. But I think about um, the designers that I liked and the looks that I liked. Um, designers like Alexander McQueen, who made things that are, are sort of in a way grotesque, but beautiful, but men would never find them attractive on women. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and it kind of goes along with what we're saying in this, uh, this book and, and featuring this chapter is that it's more about expressive individuality and um, being stylish and having a career than focus on romance and fashion. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, romance and uh, boys and young men in these, these girls' novels. And that is like counterintuitive um, because I think a lot of people think that young women and girls fiction is focused around romance. At least I thought that, and I talked with other people who thought the same, and it's not. <laughs> uh, but expressive individuality and uh, self-esteem through taking care of one's looks and all that somehow is part of the theme being emphasized here. And as to your point about men being repelled by fashion, well, <laughs> I've done a lot of work in fashion and beauty, and I'd have to say that isn't either or. There are lots of men who love women with tons of makeup on and plastic surgery and follow every fashion trend. And, and there's plenty of men who are just the opposite, who say, I like a natural woman. I don't want the plastic surgery. I don't want um, someone who's only interested in their appearance and being stylish and spending all this money on designer clothes. Uh, a woman in sweats <laughs> is just fine. So, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's highly variable there. Uh, certainly the men I know in the kind of career I have don't emphasize that so much, but you know, people, men and women, uh, respond to attractive people and also to people who know how to put themselves together, particularly who have a style that is striking or just shows some self-care and, you know, the aesthetics of the style, you know, the way you put color together or uh, know how to wear what clothes for your body type. Anyway, um, 
maybe has some more thoughts about that. Yeah. The one thought that I had when you were talking about men preferring women who are natural is uh, a quote from someone who's now, I guess, considered a fashion icon, but Fran Drescher has a joke in the nanny where she's talking about all the money she's spending on makeup and clothing. And then said something to the effect of, oi, this natural look is really costing me. Um, (laughs) Well, the natural look now, (laughs) uh, what is natural, right? (laughs) Um, And so much of what we see is two-dimensional images in social media now, which presented as style and fashion that's highly filtered. People don't even have to plastic surgery now if they don't like their appearance. Um, they can use filters to narrow their nose, even out their skin tone, and claim it's natural looking. It's interesting. We're just living in a world where appearances matter so much. Uh, Laura, I want to turn to you and talk about this trend of the customized fit. Uh, when and how did this emerge, and what do you think its future looks like in the fashion industry? Well, it, that's also a really good question because the idea of a customized fit is something that intersects with um, a lot of what Jacqueline just said with respect to the pluralism and democratic nature of the of the contemporary fashion industry, and um, the idea of customized fit intersects with um, an idea of inclusivity and broader participation Um, with respect to the the whole concept of of the book and the first question in our discussion today related to what does it mean to be in fashion? And and just to add to Jacqueline's comments about the pluralistic and democratic nature of the contemporary fashion scene and industry is that being in fashion means being able to participate um, and customized fit suggests that there's a broader level of participation for whoever wants to participate in fashion. So the idea of being in fashion is now um, less hierarchical um, than perhaps it used to be. And the idea of being in simply means being able to participate on one's own uh, customized, so to speak, terms. Okay. And so um, Antonia Glucksman, who's one of the contributors to this volume in in her study um, called The Future of Customized Garment Fit, she talks about um, this very promising trend that continues to underpin the contemporary fashion industry related to customized fit. And that notion of customized fit um, with respect to how it emerged, it's likely always been a central aspect of the historical garment industry. It's probably always existed alongside those um, opposing trends toward mass production, which probably started back with the industrial revolution in Western Europe in the second half of the 19th century and leading of course to the ready to wear industries that um, Glucksmann describes in the 1950s. And so many customization concepts have always occupied a central role in the market. However, tailored fit strategies continue to be challenged, perhaps even neglected or simply um, 
you know, unviable by many industries and companies due to their ongoing um, complexity in execution and delivery to the market or the consumer and the high cost of doing so. Um, so what Antonia Glucksman points out to us is that in uh, public surveys, customers um, tend to feel um, continuously dissatisfied to some degree with the fit of mass produced garments, uh, which suggests to us that there is this ongoing and persistent demand for clothes that are tailored to the individual. So what's referred to as MTM or made to measure. And this is a way um, for clothing companies to engage with this ongoing demand in an increasingly competitive and globalized uh, market. So um, what we would have to consider with respect to the future of how made to measure um, appears um, or is presented to the consumer um, is that uh, the challenges and opportunities that, that the MTM uh, garment industry are facing um, presenting in a presented in a historical context, um, she's suggesting to us suitable solutions, which are derived from this recent research that she has conducted, combining uh, that research with a review of emergent technologies. And so she outlines um, a successful new made-to-measure protocol, so to speak, which can be applied to the design and development of, for example, a one-piece sportswear garment. And so if we look at what Glucksman outlines for us, it seems that the future of the customized, of customized fit presents um, a protocol that is um, cost and time effective with respect to the operations for the made-to-measure industries. Um, but it also requires a heightened level of quality in terms of customers actually experiencing a better a more accurate fit, um, a better performance of that garment, and overall a better heightened customer satisfaction. And so also incorporated in that vision for the future of the customized fit industry is this need for uh, very specific management strategies within uh, small to medium sized enterprises and these will uh, hopefully render the processes of production more efficient, more affordable. And this trend of customized fit for the masses is um, seen in, you know, we've seen it in the manufacturing of made to order jeans, other garments like shirts, underwear, lingerie, and even perhaps as far as customizable fragrance and makeup products, if you think of the way that, um, mass uh, cosmetics industries are tailoring, let's say the production of foundation and shades to match all different skin types. And so those strategies also implicate a specialized production process along with enhanced uh, customer service interfaces and very specialized staff knowledge. And that's one of the most challenging aspects of the future of the made to measure industry. That staff has to have the expertise and consistency over time to follow the different parts of, of a garment through that production process, through completion, to, through to completion, using advanced labeling and bundling systems, for example.
so it sounds like this is not something that would exist within the fast fashion industry. It sounds like it's sort of happening in parallel or going against the grain. Um, for example, it, I don't think we're going to see Zara or Sheen get into customized fit, correct? I, I would agree. And I think that it's something that there is always a niche demand for and interest in. It has always existed alongside the evolution in the uh, fast fashion industries, but because of its difficulty in production and its high cost, it still remains a challenge for these fast fashion companies to incorporate in their overall corporate uh, mandate and vision. Yeah. Um, so fashion theorist Claire Rose, who lectures at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London, explains that some of the key characteristics of the contemporary fashion industry are not new. Um, Laura, wondering if you can delve into this a little bit. What are some examples of what we might think of as recent trends in the fashion industry and how far back do they actually go in history? Well, there, there are many things that I, I think we would like to give ourselves a, a pat on the back for, for being so creative and innovative with the way that the fashion industry is adapting to new and different demands. But I, I think that a lot of, a lot of these things um, can, can be seen to have historical roots that reach back much further than, than we would think. And so I would sort of uh, like to identify perhaps four main branches of this historical legacy that continues to perhaps influence the way we all continue to experience fashion in a pluralistic, democratic, and increasingly inclusive manner. And so one of them is innovations with materials. Uh, another is the creation of participatory experiences. Uh, the third one would be support networks, and the fourth would be the evolution of vintage, okay, or recycling or upcycling. So just to go back to the first point about materials, innovations with materials uh, extend as far back as human beings have been making clothing from the available resources of the natural environment. So if we think back to the way animal skins were used and continue to be used, plant materials, vegetable dyes, um, the way that um, bodies have been adorned and or uh, modified using you know, uh, jewelry made with stones or bones or other natural materials, etc. So if we look at um, the chapter written by Katrine Maria Caradotter and Elisa Palomino, they've written about this, um, the study of of the way that fish skin has been used as an historical material um, and assimilated um, in towards the, the um, innovative sustainable materials industry, the fashion industry. Um, and we also see uh, new innovations um, um, throughout these industries with mushrooms, with different forms of vegan leathers, with the use of algae and seaweed, seaweed um, the the approaches toward using waste upcycling to create not only um, new types of materials for different garments, but new experience for the way people consume and dispose of their fashion. 
And then with respect to the creation of participatory experiences, this intersects with the way that the digital realm has affected the physical experience of brick and mortar um, spaces for shopping and the consumption of fashion. And so stemming from, let's say, the conscious creation of communal public spaces that were intended to uh, mediate the growing urban centers, which were at the heart of the Industrial Revolution in Western Europe in the 19th century, and the way that those spaces were transformed into realms of commercialized consumption, leading to the conception of the department store and window shopping and the whole spectacle of modern life that was described by people like Baudelaire and Benjamin and their observations of shopping arcades and the way that those public spaces engendered a conscious act of looking at each other and consuming each other as images. So that's something that um, far predates the way that um, fashion companies and designer try to create sensory experiences in brick and mortar stores, in their fashion shows, et cetera. Um, we also can look at the um, essay written by Leonard Coos, and he talks about um, the 19th century department store in France and uh, about the fetish-oriented uh, consumption practices of consumers in, in that era as well. And then Deidre Arrington in this book talks about the conundrum of the of luxury and social media um, and the effects of e-commerce on luxury brands and how they're responding to the digital worlds um, and are now challenged to perpetuate notions of exclusivity um, and aspirational fashion consumption. So um, we have, um, let's say, uh, a well-established background and legacy and history with the creation of participatory spaces on the part of designers and retailers, which we see um, being echoed today. And then support networks. This is something that has probably evolved since the middle of the 20th century. Hilda Heim, another contributor to the volume, talks about the challenges and, and support needs of new fashion business models that are emerging on the margins of the fashion industry. And she's talking about a couture bridal um, enterprise and how support networks are something that um, was perhaps established amongst different designers and ateliers, but which has been rendered all the more, um, let's say, viable um, and user-friendly with the digital age. And then finally, the evolution of uh, vintage. Uh, Claire Eldred talks about um, the notion of object biography and it intersects with the practices of upcycling and recycling and how, um, not only is it for practical purposes and cost effectiveness to recycle clothing, but also how uh, an object or a garment in this case can acquire different facets of identity um, according to when it's used and who it's used by. Um, and also how an individual's identity um, can be layered with historical references and, and the use of of so-called vintage or used or upcycled and recycled garments. So those are a few um, of the, the four sort of pillars that I would identify with respect to how the contemporary fashion industry um, is rooted in the past. Yeah, and the discussion about vintage is really interesting. Something that I think about a lot and I know 
people have talked about on social media is how it seems like this concept of vintage has accelerated so much. The things that we are seeing in a vintage store are not from 40 years ago or even 20 years ago, but are at times even 10 years old. I mean, they're things that I wore <laughs> in college maybe and are now considered vintage. Whereas when I was in college, things that were considered vintage were from the 1940s or 1960s and maybe the 80s was considered vintage. But, you know, even then that was at least 30 years old. Um, but it seems like uh, fast fashion and um, Instagram and different forms of social media are shortening the time uh, for vintage. I don't know if that's something that you've seen as well. Well, it is. And I also see different adjectives being used to describe um, clothing that is identifiably from past eras. So it's not necessarily uh, only vintage, but it's um, historical or antique garments. And depending on these adjectives, it seems that these garments acquire um, very distinct values. Um, connected to the historical era that they're identified with. And I, I agree, I, I've, I've seen, uh, for example, in the real, real people uh, recycling and upcycling um, objects and clothing and garments and jewelry that are just from a couple of seasons ago, uh, never mind a couple decades ago. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's a really interesting uh, recent evolution. Um, and also, um, there's a fetishization of the, I, the notion of vintage that has contributed to, I would say, what is a distinct uptick in price points of, of uh, so-called vintage clothing. And they are related to, I, I would say, um, a greater, uh, more broad, uh, democratic following for um, the designers that would have been would have remained mostly aspirational in in past times, and so um, you would see, um, let's say, a T-shirt with a particular company's logo on it from no more than five years ago, and it's valued at a couple hundred dollars already. So yeah, it's an interesting evolution. That's Jacqueline Fulton and. Laura Pedican, their book is In Fashion, Culture, Commerce, Craft, and Identity. Really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, could talk about fashion all day, but we'll have to say goodbye here. Thank you again to you both. Thank you very much for having us. You are listening to the Humanities Matter podcast. You can find more podcast episodes on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast.